Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. This morning, we are going to look at Genesis 7, and it's the story about the flood. It's a very familiar story to all of us, if not most of us. I'm pretty sure uh, all, if not most of the Sunday school children would also know the story of Noah and the flood. But you know, what's saddening about this story about the flood is that especially in the last hundred years or so, and even this past week as I've looked at some uh, reading material, there have been some who look at this account, those who actually call themselves Christians and would look at this account and say, oh, this was actually not a global flood, but it was just a local flood. And the reason why they say that it is a local flood is because they are trying to bring their naturalistic worldview and trying to impose it into the text, even though there's nothing in the text that would support this. See, what such individuals are trying to do is, it is only those who support the millions of years of evolution. It's, it's those who support that then come to this text about the flood, and then they also support the fact, not all, but it's invariably those who support a local flood theory who call themselves Christians are all who support the evolutionary theory as well. And they do this, and they say that this is a local flood because they want to try and be consistent See, because the the sedimentation and the different rock layers that you see and the fossils and whatnot, uh, they, they would have to say, hey, this didn't come about by a global flood, even though it's possible by a global flood. They would say, no, this happened by millions of years. That's how all these layers came and all these fossils came. So they're trying to be consistent with their worldview, even though the Bible does not support this. And, and here's the interesting thing, that even if you look at the fossils and you read a lot on the fossils, and I tried to do uh, some reading this past week on just fossils and whatnot, what you find is in a lot of fossils, fossil records, one you find even fossils of seashells right on top of Mount Everest. See, the only explanation for that is a global flood. Then you have, uh, in the fossil records, you have animals with diseases, animals with cancer, animals even eating other animals. You have uh, thorny plants in some of these fossils. And while many of these people would say, look, and yes, these are all millions of years old. That's how these fossils came about. When you think biblically, death, Disease, thorns and thistles, they all came about after the curse, after Adam and Eve were created and after they sinned and rebelled against God and the curse came into the world. That's when death and disease and thorns and whatnot came into the world. 
So it's not millions of years that these fossils that we see uh, are records of. No, these fossils came about as a result of a global flood. And rapid sedimentary layers came about as these catastrophic events took place and, and multiple layers of sand and soil and dirt and whatnot covered so many animals and killed them. And even as you look at many of the cultures around, you know, it's estimated that that more than 300 cultures have flood stories in their narrative, in their ancestry or whatever belief system they might have. And although even they have a distorted view than the original account of the flood given in Genesis 6 through 9, it is nonetheless telling that some event like this has happened. And the original is here what we see in the Bible. And because many of these cultures have a distorted view of what happened with the global flood, they don't understand the significance of the flood account. I pray that as we look at this great account of the global flood that is mentioned here in Genesis 7, that we will appreciate the significance of this global flood account. Really, it is showing God's passion to preserve his goodness and his righteousness in the world. Because remember, God created a world and he looked at it and said, it is very good. But at this time, it is not very good. It is full of corruption and sin. So this flood account was God's passion to preserve his goodness and his righteousness in the world where he brings about this global flood by wiping out all that is corrupt except for Noah and all that is contained in the ark. And in this passage, we will see something of God's character and his doing in three sections. And we're going to see this section, this chapter in three sections, and I want to emphasize a few things as we move through this chapter. In verses 1 through 9, we're going to look at Noah's righteousness in preparing for the flood, and we get an idea of how of God's working here as well. Then in verses 10 through 16, we're going to look at God's provision in the flood. And then in verses 17 to 24, we're going to look at God's judgment in the flood. So firstly, Noah's righteousness in preparing for the flood, verses 1 through 9. Let me just read verse 1 first. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. We saw last week that Noah had obeyed all that God had commanded him by building this massive triple-decker cargo ship or ark according to very specific dimensions that God had given him. 
with a particular kind of wood covered with pitch-like material. It would be an ark that could not easily break, an ark that could not capsize, an ark that would be comfortable and waterproof as it would face the flood. Now decades have passed as, as Noah built this ark bit by bit with the help of his family and possibly others. And really, if you follow the genealogy of the godly line of Seth in, back in chapter 5, and you look at the number of years each of Noah's ancestors have lived, every one of Noah's ancestors die before the flood. Everyone in that godly line die before the flood. His father, Lamech, dies five years before the flood came. His grandfather, Methuselah, whose name, if you remember, means, uh, you know, when it comes. You know, talking about when he dies, that flood will come. And he also dies, his grandfather, Methuselah, just before the flood. And you can trace that out if you just follow the number of years given in, in Genesis 5. So decades have passed. The ark is finally finished. All the godly ancestors have died of Noah. It's only Noah and his immediate family that's left. And so now God comes to Noah again after so many years and tells Noah, Noah, it's time to get into the ark. Now God gives some additional commands to Noah in verses 2 and 3. He says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of, the, of all the earth. In the previous chapter, we saw that God had told Noah to take a pair of every kind of animal. But here's the thing. The majority of the animals were unclean. So God says, but with regards to the clean animals, you have to take seven pairs. Now this concept of clean and unclean animals, it anticipates what will be fleshed out later in the law about how a sinner is able to approach God. Because according to the law, as it further fleshes it out, it's only what is clean that can come before God. And that too through a blood sacrifice. So the idea of clean and unclean animals, it's not meaning, you know, you know, most of these animals had dirt on them versus some, a few animals didn't. No, it's the clean and unclean animals, it's specific animals that God himself has ordained as these particular animals are clean versus all those other animals are unclean. And only these animals that God has said are clean were the animals that could be used for a blood sacrifice. And in fact, as, as later, as you go through the pages of Scripture, 
as the law is given to the people of Israel through Moses, it wasn't just the animals that were offered that needed to be clean. The person himself who brings that animal sacrifice also had to be clean as they approach God. So, in you know, a person had to be clean, especially among the Israelites, in what they ate, in how they kept themselves as it related to bodily discharges and skin infections and, and moldy homes and so on and so forth. You can read of all of that in Leviticus chapter 11 through to 16. But, but the thing is this, that if the individual people, if the Israelites were in a state of uncleanness, they could not approach God and offer a sacrifice to Him. And then beyond that, we see again in the law that as God makes this distinction of clean and unclean, there's, there, you know, then God talks about further distinctions in the kind of clothes that the Israelites were to wear, in how they were to live distinctly, separate from the world around them in a holy manner, which all of this living distinctly ultimately would point to the, the distinct and holy God that the people of Israel said they were worshipping. So eating and living in a clean way and offering a clean sacrifice. That was a way, that was the only way to approach a holy God. And then to live a holy life or distinct life was then to reflect that holy God to the rest of the world. So that concept of clean and unclean is found in its very rudimentary embryonic stages here in Genesis 7. And the reason why God tells Noah to particularly take seven pairs of clean animals is for the animal blood sacrifice. This is the only way a sinner could approach a holy God, by offering a clean animal blood sacrifice that God himself says is clean. So this concept of how to approach God is what's being developed, now specifying, now with the language of clean animals versus unclean animals. And we will see in Genesis 8.20, right after the flood is over, Noah comes out of the ark and he offers animal sacrifices from these clean animals to the Lord. And so here's the thing. If there weren't these extra clean animals for sacrificing, and there was just one pair of clean animals... Once Noah has sacrificed them, that kind of animal has gone into extinction. So that's why God is saying, no, you need extra pairs. You need seven of them. Now in verse 4, God says to Noah as to why Noah needs to do all this. Verse 4 says, for in seven days... 
I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. See, this is the last warning that God will give before the flood comes. He's saying, Noah, there's one week left. Perhaps that was all the time that was required to get all of these animals into the ark and into their various cabins in the ark. And I would even think, as uh, you know, 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, perhaps also during that last week, even as Noah has done previously over the how many ever decades he had gone in building the ark, even in that last week, he would have proclaimed to everyone around the rain and the flood, it's going to come in a week's time. God's judgment is coming. Turn to God, repent, and get into the ark. This is God's provision of salvation. And I'm sure, even as you look at Second Peter 2 as well, it says people scoffed him. People mocked him. And then verse 5 says, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. He did everything that God told him to do. And then verses 6 through 9, it explains how Noah's obedient faith, how he, you know, practically what exactly did he do? There's an explanation of, okay, what exactly did Noah do? Let's just quickly read that as well, verses 6 through 9. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded him. I mean, think about this. You know, Noah had to literally leave everything that he knew as his home. He had to literally leave his world behind. Take nothing of it. He had to leave it completely behind, and then he had to get into the ark. I mean, even that required some amount of obedient faith, wouldn't it? Because by the time Noah gets into the ark and flood is over and he comes out, it's actually a very different planet altogether. It's a different world he will come back into. So Noah had to leave that, what he knew as his world and his planet, all of that behind. And then on top of that, to enter this ark, yes, Noah has taken years to build this under God's instruction. But it's one thing to build this ark. Now it's another thing to get into this ark. I mean, is this ark going to work? Noah put his full trust and faith in God and was obedient to him. And he entered the ark along with his family as well as the animals. Now here's the thing I want to ask you. 
Why is it that Noah listened to God and no one else in the world did? I mean, Noah was preaching righteousness. They saw the ark, but nobody listened to God. Nobody listened to God's word, but only Noah did. Why? Just go back to the end of chapter 6. We looked at this last week. Genesis 6 and 22. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. So again, commending Noah's obedience. Then again in verse 9, as we looked at, God is commending Noah's obedience. Verse 5 also we saw, God commends Noah's obedience. But then just go back to Genesis 7.1. So right after Noah has built the ark, he's been obedient so far in all that God had commanded him. Genesis 7.1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. Notice, For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Do you see what's happening here? God is connecting Noah's righteous living with his obedient faith. Because Noah has just built the ark and done everything that God had told him. And God sees that and says, I see that you are righteous. So God is connecting Noah's righteous living with his obedient faith. Now again, I don't want you to forget how God has brought this about in Noah. Remember, in Genesis 6-8, God first showed favor or grace to Noah. This grace or favor was shown to Noah before Noah did anything. He didn't start building the ark. He didn't do anything. Way before that, God showed his grace toward Noah. This was God's unmerited sovereign grace that would pour out to Noah. And then in Genesis 6-9, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, that as a result of God's grace working in Noah's life, it says that Noah was righteous and he was blameless and he walked with God. This righteousness that Noah possessed was as a result of God's grace working in his life. And so as we see Noah building the ark according to its details, bringing the animals into the ark, this is a picture of Noah's obedient faith. This is a picture of Noah living out his righteousness that was given to him by God's grace. So here's the thing that I want you to understand. On the one side, there is God's sovereign grace working. On the other side, there's Noah's obedient faith. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So, see, notice here, Noah is not forcibly against his will. It's like, oh, I've got to obey God, and he's trying to somehow push himself to obey. No, he's willingly obeying God. 
Yet this willing obedience to God, this righteousness that he's living out, is evidence of God's grace working in Noah's life. So in Genesis 7-1, when God says, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me. God is not saying, Hey, Noah, You've merited entry into the ark because of your own good works. That's not what God is saying. God is not saying, because of your good works, that's why you're ultimately going to be saved. No, God is saying, you, Noah, you whom I've shown my grace and favor to, you who show proof of my grace working in your life by living righteously and obediently, You, Noah, you are the one who will ultimately be saved, unlike all the unrighteous people in the world. See, Noah stands in stark contrast compared to the rest of the world in the way he lives his life because of God's sovereign work of grace in his life. And this is the kind of person that will ultimately be saved. See, this is very important for us to understand because this is true of every child of God. Because a child of God is not simply someone who has an intellectual understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and what the good news of Jesus is. I mean, we all know James 2, 19, right? Where it says, even the demons have intellectual knowledge of God. They knew very well who Jesus is. They know even now very well who Jesus is. They know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. In fact, Satan and his demons have a better theology than any human being because they've been around for a long time and have witnessed all of redemption history up to now. But here's the thing. It is merely an intellectual knowledge. That knowledge has no effect on their life. They do not submit to God and to the truth of his word. They do not love God. They're not obedient to him. In fact, the whole argument in this second half of James 2 is that if you say that you have faith, without any evidence of that in your life, then that means you don't have real faith. It's a dead faith. And let me also just say this. A child of God is not somebody who simply has an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel is and added to that a little bit of morality. No, that's not who a child of God is. A true child of God is one whose life has been invaded by the sovereign grace of God and therefore not only knows who God is and who Jesus is and what the gospel is, but they also love Jesus and they live a life of obedience to him because they know that this is for his glory and for their own good. 
See, Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But, uh, you know, just so we're not confused here, this obedience is not talking about perfection. It's not talking about sinlessness. In fact, even Noah is not sinless or perfect, and we'll see how he sins in Genesis 9. But it's, it's the fact that the, the very characteristic of a believer is a growing in love and faith and obedience to Jesus and a growing hatred to one's own sin and the sin in the world. That is the proof that God's abounding grace has invaded a person's life. That is the proof that a person has received the righteousness that God supplies. That is the proof that that person is truly a believer. I wonder where you stand this morning. Does your life show evidence of a growing faith and obedience and a love for Jesus? and a growing hatred for sin? Or do you simply have an intellectual understanding of Jesus? An intellectual understanding of the gospel mixed with a little bit of morality? Oh, there were people, many people in Noah's day who had an intellectual understanding of the ark, but that didn't save them. It is only the person who is growing and changing by the abounding grace of God that will ultimately be saved. Noah showed the evidence of God's grace at work in his life in the way he lived a righteous and obedient life. This is the kind of person that will ultimately be saved by God. And this was all because of God's grace in Noah's life. So that's Noah's righteousness, even as God is operating in the background as he prepares for the flood. Now let's look at God's judgment in the flood, verses 17 through 2. Pardon me, God's provision in the flood, verses 10 through to 16. Verse 10, it reads, After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. God told Noah, in exactly a week, I'm going to send a flood. And exactly how God had said, after seven days, the flood came on the earth. Verse 11 says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, that's when the flood came on the earth. Why, you know, so specific in detail? Because it's showing that this is a real event, that it happened on this year and month and day of Noah. 
It's saying that this is an actual historical event. It's not simply a fairy tale. It actually happened during Noah's time, according to God's appointed time, on this specific year and month and day. And it says, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. So if you notice here, there are two sources of water for the flood. The first source was underground waters, where it says here, fountains of the great deep. You remember in Genesis 1-2, We saw when the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the what? Of the deep. So this deep, it's a reference to the primeval waters. And remember, God separated the waters. There were waters above with the expanse in between and waters below, and they formed the oceans. And then the rest of the, the waters, they went into underground caverns. Massive underground caves and uh, these pockets under the crust of the earth. And so when it says that on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, the idea is this. Of the surface of the earth, they are breaking apart and water is gushing forth with massive force from the underground. That the landmass over the face of the earth and on the ocean floors, they are splitting up, and massive spouts of water are surfacing up and perhaps even projecting into into the sky. So think massive shift in tectonic plates, you know, resulting in massive earthquakes and tsunamis. So when this is happening, there's there's a reconfiguration happening between the land masses as they're splitting up. And the ocean flows are are, are even deepening as as the earth's crust is all breaking up and geyser-like things are just projecting out. In fact, some scientists, both creation scientists and secular scientists, suggest that the earth at one point could have very well been one large landmass. Really, even when you look at the atlas, you look at the shapes, you can almost kind of put them all together, where it kind of fits in together. And if that is true, then massive earthquakes and tsunamis during the time of the flood would explain how the various continents were formed. You know, just recently, we had a small earthquake in Melbourne. I mean, it lasted for, what, about 15 or 20 seconds. And most of us felt that if we were in our homes. But imagine then if there are multiple massive earthquakes all over the earth with water spouting up with massive pressure, tsunamis, landmasses breaking off. I mean, what a frightful thing it would have been. 
The entire topography and geography of the earth would have changed in an instant. So that's the first source of water for the flood, as the fountains of the deep burst forth. Secondly, the heavens opened up and there was torrential rain for 40 days and nights. Now, I don't know when the rains first started, but remember from Genesis 2, 5 and 6, which we looked at quite a few months ago now, we saw that there was no rain before the fall. But it is through these underground caverns where they had water, they would come up as a spring and then they would flow out as a river and that river would further break out into various tributaries and that's how the, the lands were watered. And, the, and then that would further go into the oceans and the oceans would be connected to the underground cavern somehow and then it would go like that. So that's how the hydrological cycle worked. It didn't go up to the clouds and down, but it was underground to the ground to the ocean, and then underground. And we saw how this was a continuous, uninterrupted supply of water because man didn't need to water the soil to make the soil fertile. All the lands were very fertile with trees flourishing everywhere. The land was naturally watered through this uninterrupted underground cycle that kept going like this. But remember, it was after the fall, the curse of thorns and thistles came about. Where do you get thorns and thistles? Where places are arid, where you don't get much water. Meaning sometime, once the curse uh, came about, there was interrupted water supply. And that's how you get thorns and thistles. So perhaps there was rain right after the fall. Some think the first time it rained was actually during the flood. I'm not sure. But this much is sure that there would have never been a global downpour of rain. There was torrential rain, our verse says, for 40 days and 40 nights. Continuous heavy rain for more than a month everywhere on the planet. I mean, think about it. There's earthquakes. The floor of the earth is breaking up. Massive spouts of water coming up with great force. Landmass is getting separated. Most likely huge tsunamis. And on top of that, there's torrential rains for 40 days and 40 nights. So there's water from below, tsunamis, water from above. And there's people and animals everywhere. Not a single place at that time would have been safe on the earth. There would have been not a single place to hide when this happened. Not a single place. And it was during this time, verse 13 to 16 elaborates then on God's provision for Noah and his family and the animals. 
verses 13 to 16. It says, on the very same day. Which day? The day when everybody boarded this large cargo ship. The day when everything started collapsing on the outside and rain started pouring. On the very same day, Noah and his son, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. You know, this, this section is really repeating the fact that Noah and his family entered the ark during this time when this was happening on the outside. They had already entered the ark. But here we're given a little bit more detail. Each of the individuals, if you notice, are pointed out. Noah and his sons are particularly named. And then it very specifically says, and their three wives. It doesn't just say Noah's sons and their wives, Noah's wives, and their three wives. And then even Noah's wife. So if you count, you can individually count each of those eight individuals of Noah's family. It's as if to say that each individual person of Noah's family entered Noah's ark and they were safe when this was happening on the outside, when the flood began. And it's not just Noah and his family, but it's also all of the animals according to their kinds, the wild animals, the domestic animals, the, the creeping creatures, the, the flying creatures, including the birds. Two by two, they went into the ark, the text says. I mean, what an, what an extraordinary sight it would have been. I mean, to, the, to see the animals in, in some kind of procession going into the ark, two by two, the male and the female, going side by side. And to think that, hey, the animals aren't trying to kill each other, and they're not trying to attack Noah and his family. They're just coming in, male and female, two by two, in an orderly fashion into the ark. See, Noah is not somehow, you know, He's got a noose around the animals and some are pulling with a rope and trying to get these animals in. That's what's happening here. No, these animals too are willingly coming into the ark. Noah couldn't have done this. No, this is, what this is showing is God's sovereign power at work, even over the animals, because this is not something natural. Animals wouldn't just naturally just come in two by two into the ark. And each of these animals of every kind were then brought into the ark and they too were safe in the ark once the flood began on the outside of the ark. This was God's provision 
not just for Noah and his family, but also for the animals. And the last part of verse 16 says, and the Lord shut him in. I love that. And the Lord shut him in. See, the Lord doesn't say, oh, Noah, or Noah and your sons, you know, make sure you close that door. No, the Lord himself shuts the door. That one door that served as the entry point into and the exit point out of the ark was shut by the Lord himself. Once Noah and his family and each of the animals, two of each kind, were in the ark, the Lord himself shut it. One commentator writes regarding this, the Lord shutting the door signals the divine protection that kept off the raging seas. See, God sealed that door shut. So there's no way that this door would somehow become loose while this torrential flood is going, out, going on on the outside and somehow this door would fling open. That wouldn't happen. There was no way anyone would fall off the ark or any water would come into the ark because it's the Lord himself who has sealed the door. Everyone inside the ark would be secure because the Lord himself had shut the door. See, the security of their salvation would not be left to Noah and his family. The security of their salvation was dependent solely on the Lord who shut and sealed that door. And so it is with us, even as believers, in a spiritual sense. If we are truly children of God, who have been impacted by the, the, the grace of God, then the security of our salvation, it is not dependent on us. No, it's dependent on the Lord and His preserving grace who will take us to the end. You know, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 tells us that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our ultimate salvation. Or Philippians 1, 6 that says, He who began a, uh, that work of salvation in us will complete that work. It is guaranteed because God is doing that work and God will preserve that work. But here's the thing. While the Lord shutting and sealing the door of the ark meant the security of everyone inside the ark, it also meant that there would be no security of salvation for those who are outside the ark. Think about it. I mean, we read a few weeks ago from the book of Jude that Enoch, that's Noah's great-grandfather, was a preacher of righteousness. So he would have been preaching about the righteousness of God and told people of sin and how they are to turn to God and listen to his word. Then Enoch's son, Methuselah, like I mentioned earlier in the sermon, 
you know, he was sort of like a timer of God's coming judgment because of what his name meant. And the year he died was the year the flood came. Noah, too, was called a preacher of righteousness. And then remember in Genesis 6-3 where God had said that his spirit, that his Holy Spirit would not strive with man forever through the preaching of these godly men. No, they would simply have another 120 years before he would send the judgment. And then in Genesis 7, as we've just looked at in the previous point, in verse 1, where God said, in seven days, he would send the flood. So there's been warning after warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Judgment is coming. Now, what do you think is the point of the warnings? I mean, God could have sent his judgment any time he wanted. Could he not? Of course. But God was patient and gracious where he sent repeated warnings year after year for the people to turn from their sin and to turn to him. And he provided a means of salvation, which was the ark. And then on top of that, when all the animals came in two by two, and they, that too voluntarily, they came into the ark. I'm sure many of the people around would have seen this. And they would have even thought, oh yeah, this is not natural. This is, this is unnatural. How is this happening? But did they turn to God? No. And then on top of that, the door of the ark was left open until the very last minute. There was every opportunity to turn from their sin and to trust God and to trust in his word and then to enter the ark. God was patient and gracious for so many years. Still the people willingly, willingly rejected God and his word and God finally shut the door. And there would be no escaping judgment then. You see, there is an end date to God's grace and patience for those who will continue to reject God. Yes, God will be patient for a while. He will be more than patient. But it does have an end date. Let me tell you, friend, today is the Today, the door of salvation is still open. And it's not a physical ark, but it's a person. The Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for the sin of this world. 
And He has made it possible for sinners like you and me to be made right with God. If you have not put your trust in Jesus and have not turned from your sin, today is the day of salvation for you. Don't wait another day because you don't know if you will have another day. You don't know when that door will be shut because that will be the day when Jesus returns and he will bring judgment. And you don't, that could happen even now. And then beyond that, if you reject God's way of salvation today, know this, my friend. Your heart will only get hardened more. Because as God is showing his way of salvation, you're saying no. And your wicked heart is only going to get harder and harder and harder. You know, two days from now, it's not going to be less harder. In fact, it's going to be more harder because you've, you're rejecting it today. Turn to Jesus today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And if you do believe, then turn from your sin and keep on turning to Jesus and live a life obedient to him where you're willfully, joyously living a life of obedience to him because you know him and you love him because this is the evidence that you are truly a child of God. During the time of the flood, God's provision of salvation was the ark. And Noah and his family and all the animals that were there were preserved and kept safe in the ark by God shutting the door himself, guaranteeing that they would be safe in the flood. Now thirdly, Let's also look at God's judgment in the flood, verses 17 through to 24. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. Now in this section we have more details of the flood. And when it says the flood continued for 40 days on the earth, this is not saying that, you know, if as we continue reading we'll see that the flood waters you know, they last longer than 40 days and 40 nights. So what this 40 days and nights are talking about is the days that it took to fill up the earth with the flood waters. It's not talking about then the flood remaining, but how long it took for the flood to fill up the earth. As the waters burst forth from the ground and the torrential rain kept coming from the sky. Verse 17 and then 18 continues on by saying, The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. So as the water levels are rising, the ark begins to float. I mean, this massive cargo ship with everything in it. You can imagine as it, as it begins to float, as the water levels start going up, possibly some, some creaking here and there from the ship's joints and the wood that it's made of. 
But then as the people inside are looking, there's no water coming in. This ship is not capsizing. Oh, this ship is not drowning in this big flood. And remember, there's nothing to navigate this huge cargo ship. But it does get lifted up as the water levels keep rising and rising and rising, and it finally floats over the surface of the water. Why? Because ultimately, God's protective hand of grace is on this ark. And from beginning to end, he's going to be there. Now, verse 19 and 20, it reads, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed and above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now, the phrase, the, the waters prevailed, it's repeated four times in verse 18, 19, 20, and then again repeated in verse 24. And this term, prevailed, it's actually a military term. It's used when an army is winning the battle. So like when we say the, you know, the, the army was strong and mighty and prevailed in the battle, as a way of saying that that army is winning in the battle. And so by using this military term here for the floodwaters and repeating it so many times, the text is telling us that, hey, this is not just some placid waters. You know, calm, quiet waters. You know, the ark is just sitting there and the water level is just coming up like maybe in a tub or something and it's just slowly rising up like that. No, these are fierce and, and raging waters. Absolutely fierce, raging waters. And, and these waters are roaring through and they're conquering everything in its path. And the raging floodwaters are covering up everything with water. The entire planet is, is submerged in these chaotic waters. So much so that verse 20 says that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, covering them 15 cubits deep. Meaning that there was so much water on the planet that even the tops of the highest mountains were submerged in the water by more than 20 feet. That's how much water there was on the planet. You know, when you read this, there is nothing about the description here that even hints at the fact that this was some kind of localized flood. I mean, it really was a global flood. If it was just a global flood, then you, know, you can ask, why would God ask Noah for so many years to build this massive cargo ship or ark and have all the animals in there? I mean, as my professor in seminary would, would say, God could have simply told Noah and his family just to keep walking. Sure, it might take a few years, but if it was just localized flood, all Noah had to do was migrate to another area. 
Why would he need to build a massive ark for so many years? And if it was a local flood, then the universal language of all and everything that's repeated again and again and again would not make sense. And then beyond that, if it was a local flood, after the flood, we will see that God promises never to send a flood like that again. But we know that there's been many local floods in many regions. Then God would be breaking his promise again and again and again. But that's not the case. This was a global flood that submerged the entire planet, so much so that even the highest mountaintops were submerged in water more than 20 feet deep. The water certainly prevailed everywhere. Now verse 21 to 23 tell us about how the flood snuffed out all life on the planet. Verse 21. Verse 21 onwards. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Every living creature that was on the ground, everything that had the breath of life died, nothing was spared. And think about this. As Noah and his family are safe inside the ark, even as the flood begins, just, I want you to just picture this for a moment. They start hearing crackings of the ground, earthquakes, waters parting out from the ground, Heavy rain pelting down from the sky. Huge tsunamis hitting the land and and huge waves hitting this ark. And what can they hear? Screams of people outside the ark. And the crying of the animals as they face the flood. Every single creature on the face of the ground, man and animals were killed and drowned in this global flood. See, this is no happy bedtime story for kids. This is more like the worst nightmare possible. There hasn't been a global catastrophe yet since then. The whole planet had become a graveyard submerged in water. And God had brought this about. It was no accident. No, God had planned it. He said it would happen, and that's exactly what happened. And as many theologians have pointed out, this was God decreating the world, so to speak. 
See, God had given breath to all the animals and mankind. Now God takes away their breath and they're killed in the flood. So there's no creatures, there's no dry land, there's no visible trees or mountains or anything. It's just water everywhere. The earth had become formless and void like it was on day one of creation. God had reversed what he had done in the first six days of creation. And God brought this about because of all the sin and corruption in the world. And if you think about this, in some sense, the flood is God giving the people what they wanted. See, because God, by his powerful word, he had set up his creation for his own glory and for the good of mankind. And God had set up a specific order, a certain design and a certain kind of living under his rule and authority. But mankind rejected God, rebelled against God, didn't want to live according to God's established order. Now, they didn't want to live under the blessing and the goodness of God's word. They wanted their own way, which was the path of ruin, said, no, we don't want to live under the blessing of your word. And so, what does God do? God essentially says, okay, I will remove the blessing of my word that you have rejected and despised. I'm going to remove that. And what God created became uncreated. And the people got what they wanted, to not live under the blessing of his word. And everything, everything perished. Verse 23 then reiterates just to say that in all this judgment and in all this death, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And this is also an important principle for, for us who are believers to understand in terms of how God saves his people. God saves his people through judgment. Whenever God is saving his people, he delivers them by bringing judgment on his enemies. That's how he saves his people. In fact, this same account, 1 Peter, we see in 1 Peter 3.20, where um, this whole account is then paralleled with our salvation, which is expressed in baptism. But 1 Peter 3.20 specifically, notice the words that are used here. It says, Noah and his family were saved through the waters of judgment. It doesn't say Noah and his family were saved from the waters of judgment, but through the waters of judgment. So while God brought judgment on the wicked and wiped out all life that was there on the ground, 
in that same act, he was saving Noah and all who were in the ark, bringing them into a new world after destroying all that was corrupt and sinful. In fact, if you go to the next chapter, when you, next book rather, when you think about in Exodus, and you think of the, the waters of the Red Sea, they brought judgment on the Egyptian army. But in that same sense, while the judgment came on the Egyptian army, God was saving the Israelites through the same waters of judgment. Then right in the end of redemptive history, when you look at it, God judges Satan and his demons and all the wicked. They're all judged and sin is then wiped out. The very presence of sin is wiped out and locked away in the eternal lake of fire. And even the current earth and the heavens will be destroyed. And while that's judgment, God in doing that, God is then ultimately saving his people, bringing them into a new world that is without sin and death and disease. And this is where we're all headed as believers. That's the end. But what about in the middle? Right in the middle of redemptive history is the cross. And even there, God saves his people through judgment except that on the cross, God's judgment didn't fall on his enemy, but it fell on his beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He was treated as an enemy, and he was treated as the cursed one. And as God's judgment fell on Jesus Christ for our sin, God was saving us through that judgment. We were bought through the judgment, kept safe in Jesus, as Jesus bore the judgment on our behalf, and we were then given new life in Jesus Christ. Really, if you want a good resource to understand this concept of salvation through judgment, Jim Hamilton has written a wonderful book, you know, tracing this whole theme from Genesis to Revelation. I would encourage you to get it if you have the time to read it. But as I close, I just want to say this. God is zealous for his glory to preserve his righteousness and his goodness and to uphold that. And it is because God is good and right, he cannot tolerate sin and he has to judge sin. So don't think when you think of God merely as this this mushy, loving God. No, he's, he's also fierce, and he cannot tolerate sin, and he will judge sin. And Jesus had said that he will come again, and when he comes again that time, he will be saving his people, but at the same time, he's also coming to destroy those who are his enemies. Friend, If you are somebody here today who does not follow Jesus, let me tell you this. He will not simply ignore your sin 
simply because you think, oh, he's been so patient with me all along. No, don't mistake God's patience with God being indifferent to your sin. Do not make that mistake. God killed every human being and all the animals that were on the ground because of all the corruption and sin that he saw in the world. And he has said that he will do it again, not with water, but with fire. God means what he says, and he will do what he says he will do. But at the same time, I want you to understand that God is gracious and merciful, and he has provided a way for you to be saved. And that should cause you to, on the one sense, run from that judgment, but also then run to him to be saved. Because he is the only one who can save you in and through the person of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, please email me or one of the elders at connect at gracebiblechurch.org.au. But for those of us who are believers, let us never forget that we are saved also through judgment. That the judgment that was supposed to fall on us fell on Jesus. And now we are safe and secure in our salvation. And God will keep us safe to the end as we continue to trust in Jesus just like he did with Noah and his family. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing our sin, recognizing that you are holy, holy, holy. There is not a being that we know that is like you. You who are perfect, you who are righteous, you who are just, you who, you who is gracious and merciful and kind and loving, and yet will not go any, let go of any sin, you have to punish sin. Father, for those of us who are believers, we just thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he paid the price, he paid the judgment for our sin, and in doing so, he saved us. Father, I do pray for those perhaps listening this morning that do not know Jesus. Father, I do pray that they would humble themselves, that they would not take it lightly, even this account of this global flood, because you haven't changed. Your attitude towards sin has not changed one bit. You are still the same, and yet you have provided a way for them to be saved. Father, we do pray that they would humble themselves and they would turn to you and turn to the cross and see what Jesus has done and submit their life to him without delay. Oh, Father, we just pray that you would be gracious to them. 
even as they humble themselves before you. Father, we thank you for the great God you are. And we thank you for those of us who are believers for the security of salvation that we have because of Jesus. We pray that each day that we live, we would live in light of the fact that we have been saved through judgment and that Jesus is coming once again to take us with him. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Keep us faithful to the end. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.